your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to to worship together as your body. Even as this text may be familiar to some of us, uh, we ask that you will illuminate our hearts and minds so we can experience you you through uh, just the preaching of the word this morning, Lord. We pray these things in in your son's name. Amen. Well, um, I began following Jesus when I was 16, and previous to that, I did not know a ton about a relationship with God. And uh, when I heard the full gospel, I knew enough to know that I wanted more of God uh, in my life. And, and over those first couple years in particular, here's uh, one thing that I really learned. Uh, I often really struggle in prayer. Um, it was very challenging for me. And I would often default to a study God's word. And I don't know, uh, people are different. So some people are the opposite of that or some people go through seasons of that. But, but prayer was really a struggle for me my mind is often undisciplined, and in the middle of prayer, my mind will drift into who knows what and, and where. And uh, so that's always been a challenge, and I've found that just as athletes might need to go back to the fundamentals of, of blocking and tackling in football or, or, or boxing out in, in basketball, the, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 provides a foundation for prayer that the church has leaned on for centuries. And the beauty of the Lord's Prayer is its uh, simplicity as well as its depth. Uh, simplicity and depth, because of, uh, for those of us who might struggle sometimes to have intimacy with, with God uh, through prayer, I, I found that when my prayer is rooted in Scripture, it ensures that my prayers are tethered in reality and in biblical truth. There's a quote from Alexander White says this regarding the Lord's Prayer, the shortest memory may retain it and the busiest life may utter it. It's only five verses but it's a fundamental example of the principles of communion and communication with God. And we have much to learn uh, and apply based off of of this teaching today. So it starts off, verse 9, Jesus says, pray then like this. You can imagine if Jesus says something like that, ears would perk up uh, when he's teaching the disciples here. Ours should probably too. It says, pray then like this. And that intro to prayer alone uh, should cause that attention. So Jesus continues, verse 9, starts off, Our Father in heaven, and right away, our means communal. You know, uh, prayer doesn't have to be community-oriented, but it certainly can be, and, you know, praying with others is important, teaching your children to to talk with God. Um, I had one great example of this recently that my family experienced over Thanksgiving. So my father-in-law had been doing some genealogy research. If anyone's ever done, like, the Ancestry.com type stuff, I haven't. I don't know really how it works, but he did and found a relative of his that was a pastor in 1736, okay, all the way back, 1736. And there was a prayer recorded on Thanksgiving uh, that he said in the congregation, and it was a beautiful prayer about gratitude to God and a prayer for the future of the nation. It was, again, it was 1736 before even the nation was founded. And uh, so we got to pray that prayer in our family community, you know, with others as well as with God's presence, just, just a really cool experience. And then it goes into our you know, Father, 
Now, the typical way to refer to God in the Old Testament, in Judaism, was things like Elohim. That's a Hebrew word, and it's a generic, general term for God. Okay, it's not his name. Um, in the same way that in the English language we say God, Elohim is like that. And so Elohim is just a designation. And you also have descriptive characteristics about God in the Old Testament, or, or a title like Almighty, you know, such as Adonai, the Hebrew word. Uh, and so that was typical. That was a typical way to refer to God, to the Jews. Now, the Greek here in Matthew 6 is, uh, is none of those terms, but rather uh, pater, or father, okay? And in Aramaic, which in that time, that was the common language of the day, was Aramaic, that was the typical language in Israel, the term would be Abba, okay, Abba. Now, what does Abba mean? Well, some, such as Eugene Peterson would say it's like daddy. It's comparable to daddy. And this is an understandable comparison since it was the first word children learned. Um, and, and there's this childlike affection that is assumed with the use of this word. Uh, in at least a few places, Abba is still the first word that children learn. Places like Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan. Uh, still to this day, you know, if you catch someone saying it in an airport or something, you kind of figure out where they're from. Uh, now, the reason why daddy is not uh, necessarily the best translation, however, some argue is simply because children will essentially always refer to their father as Abba, okay? That doesn't stop as they get older. So, in other words, they don't mature out of that term as they age. Uh, so, Abba would not be as childish sounding as dada or, or daddy. And because of that, uh, father or dad might be more appropriate, appropriate in that regard when you're translating that term into English. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have a perfect one-to-one equivalency uh, in the English language, Abba. So Jesus surprises his disciples when he employs the use of Abba. And it affirms this deep personal relationship. Um, it affirms both, this is important, it, it affirms both respect in addressing God as a superior, but it's, there's also this profound personal relationship when Jesus uses this word Abba. So it's important we understand that. Now, uh, what was the Old Testament written in? Okay, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and understand uh, Hebrew, the, the public reading of the Old Testament in synagogues, temples, was always only in Hebrew. It was always only in Hebrew. And so Jesus took this giant step in this prayer of endorsing Aramaic, which is, again, the, the common everyday language, uh, as an acceptable language for, for, uh, for prayer and worship. Now, um, so he affirmed this personal, this, this individual relationship with, with God. And actually, if you didn't know this, the Galatian church, uh, the Roman church, um, note both of those churches would be Greek-speaking churches. Okay? They would not have known Aramaic. Um, they continued to address God as Abba in the early church, even though they would not know Aramaic. In Galatians 4, 6, you see the term Abba. In Romans 8, 15, 16, you see the word Abba, and they're referring to God as Abba. So the, the early church continued to prize this address to God because of, of Jesus. So Jesus' use of Abba authorized his disciples to address God in this way. And as Tim Keller says, 
It is to be understood as his giving them a share in his relationship to God. So, in other words, we, we share in Jesus' relationship to God. And this means that if you've ever asked the question or ever felt in your heart, what does God think of me right now? You know, and we walk around thinking, are we okay? Um, it can be answered the same way as asking, well, what does God think of Jesus? That's how God thinks of you, those who are in Christ. So this is, in a nutshell, the gospel. Since we have access to God through Christ, Abba is important. So then we are to pray, hallowed be your name, right? That's the next part. And what does hallowed mean? That's kind of an old-sounding word that's uh, unfamiliar to our modern ears or sentiments. Well, it means holiness, uh, to be set apart. Uh, unlike any other, no comparison exists in the world. That's what it means to be hallowed. And this sounds like a weird prayer when you think about it, because are we requesting you know, that, that, uh, that God's name be, become hallowed? Like, isn't, isn't God already holy? And it's not necessarily that, although it's understandable why we'd be confused by that. It really is a prayer about a couple things. First, it's a request that we individually recognize God's name as hallowed. Uh, and second, it's a request that the rest of the world recognizes God's name as hallowed. So why is it significant that Jesus uses hallowed and Abba and pairs them uh, together? Um, it's, it's this relational coziness of Abba mixed with a reverence and th this, uh, the awe of hallowed, a very unique address to begin this prayer that Jesus employs. So this church is the starting point of prayer, the relational coziness mixed with awe, this relational intimacy, as well as being awestruck with the holiness of God. So the Lord's Prayer starts with a focus on praising God here. Why does God, you ever thought, why does God call his people to praise him outside of like he deserves it? Well, have you ever noticed that when you or if you adore something or someone, you must express it, okay? Why do we talk about anything excellent or admirable? Uh, a beautiful painting, don't we, don't we bring others with us to, sh to show it to them? Or if you see a beautiful sunset and someone's close by, you, you point it out. Uh, it's like this sense that you have to. And it's because we miss out if we don't get caught up in those things. And God doesn't want us to miss out on praising him. Um, C.S. Lewis says this concept well, uh, praise completes enjoyment. Praise completes enjoyment. He says this, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So it's kind of like parents can, can, can I'm sure, uh, relate to this. I know when Sarah and I had our, our babies, she would, you know, just say to me, like, I love them. <laughs> just tell me as if I didn't know or, you know, but she would, she would just express it like she had to. And um, it wasn't new information every time she said it, but she had to express it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this, Prayer and praise are the oars in which you row into the deep waters of Christ. Prayer and praise are the oars in which you row into the deep waters of Christ. And then as a critique, Spurgeon says this, We receive a 
continent of mercies, but only return an island of praise. So Jesus here is teaching us to praise God for our benefit. We are to embrace the intimacy as well as the awe of God. And he goes into verse 10, your kingdom come. Uh, what, is, what does God's kingdom mean exactly? Well, you can think of it as wherever God is the supreme ruler, you know, wherever he is king, wherever he reigns supreme, right? And Jesus mentions the kingdom, uh, you know, about a hundred times. I mean, it's, it's a major theme of Jesus. He continually references kingdom of God. And so what is that? Well, just really quickly, there are, there are four kind of scholarly understandings of how we are to maybe in, understand when God references the kingdom of God. So one is uh, eschatological. Okay, I know that's a mouthful, but any t- time you hear a, a fancy word, just know that it's, it's usually pretty simple. Eschatos is Greek for last, and so eschatology is the study of, of end times, right? Last days. So that's, that's all that means. And it, it really refers to God's kingdom at, at the end of history, okay? So you're talking about like heaven and um, you know, being with God forever. And so when, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, a lot of times he's talking about that. Um, another, the, the second one is, is called mystical. I don't like that name. I didn't invent this, but um, this is how sometimes scholars refer to the kingdom of God as mystical. To me, I don't like it because it sounds kind of fake, right, or magical or you know, not real. That's not what's meant, though. It refers to God's kingdom in the heart of a, a follower of Jesus, you know, a relationship with God where God reigns supreme in your life. Uh, so the Holy Spirit resides in each person that belongs to Christ, and so that's what that's referring to. The third one is political, and that simply refers to the kingdom of God in a particular nation or empire or region or whatever. Now, nations have tried to do this a lot. Uh, it doesn't go well when you try to force belief on people, um, but God will, in fact, establish his political reign. That is our ultimate destiny. And so sometimes when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, it, it can, it can mean, mean some of that. And then the last one is institutional kingdom, which is the church. It's the body of Christ. And you know, the, the church, we are citizens of heaven, living on this earth here and now. And so you know, if that doesn't help, that's, that's fine. But if you want to think of it, uh, in a more narrow way, or even, actually, I should say in a broader, broader way, anywhere God reigns supreme, right? God takes into account our eternity, our now, everything in between. And so praying your kingdom come means simply that we are volunteering to God to be involved, to be active participants in the salvation of the world, in, in bringing God's kingdom and being a part of God's kingdom here. Um. And then he moves into your will be done, okay? Uh, what is God's will? I know a lot of, you can find some, a lot of self-help books about finding God's will, or even some good ones, I'm sure, that are out there. Um, but David Platt, he's an author and pastor, and I, and I will say I don't recommend everything that he uh, has, has written. However, in, the, in this book, he, he did write Follow Me. I, I liked it. But he said this about God's will, and, and it's good. We have no need to ask God to reveal his will for our lives. We each ask God to align our lives with the will he has already revealed. Okay, it's kind of like, what's God's will for my life? If you're really interested, it's in, it's in God's word. You know, it's in here. Uh, and, our, and, and we are to align our lives to it. I, th- I think that's a great perspective. And then later on in the Gospel of Matthew 28, 
uh, there, there's uh, scripture that points to God's will being good, pleasing, and perfect. You know, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this concept of when we pray God's will be done, is, it's laced through scripture and Jesus' life. In the nativity story, which we'll read soon, uh, in the following weeks, Mary responds by saying, let it be to me according to your word. Jesus also says right here, your will be done, and, and says again before the cross, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. So praying that God's will be done is a prayer saying that you are more interested in the pleasure and satisfaction God gets from your life than your own pleasure and satisfaction that you get from your life. I'll say that again. Praying that God's will be done is a prayer saying that you are more interested in the pleasure and satisfaction God gets from your life than your own pleasure and satisfaction from your life. That's your will be done. And then he goes in, on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, this phrase concludes the aspect of your kingdom come. It's the blending of heaven and earth, which is God's plan for eternity. It says, God, establish your kingship and rule. Now, we have all kinds of stereotypes that you find in like cartoons and, and movies and stuff about what heaven will be like. It's usually like some cloud world or something. We're floating amoebas or, or whatever. And, and nothing is real, nothing is concrete. And the Bible tells us that's not really true. Philippians 3 says we'll get new bodies. Revelations, the end of Revelation, talks about you know, the, the God establishing his reign on earth, the earth, this earth, this place, will be redeemed, uh, transformed somehow. I don't know exactly everything there is to know about what the redeemed earth will look like, but we are, uh, when we pray at, on earth as it is in heaven, as believers, we look forward to his eternal reign. This, this prayer invites that. It invites excitement about it and anticipation about that and bringing others with us to it. Uh, so at this point in the prayer, we turn a corner. We're, we're, we are to be reoriented towards God. Um, now that we are more in tune with recognizing who God is, we've humbled ourselves before him. We can uh, make requests, trusting our heart is in the right place. And so by verse 11... It goes into a very simple request. Give us this day our daily bread. Is there anything significant about this request? Well, it recognizes that even for our most basic needs, such as bread, we are utterly dependent upon him. Utterly. And, you know, for a first century Jew, what does daily bread remind you of? You know, we just finished the Exodus series, right? So certainly they would connect daily manna. And, you know, from the Exodus, it refers to the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, going through the desert of Zin, where, you know, there's millions of Israelites, they're fed by God in a complete desert. And Jesus is talking about daily dependence, he's talking about daily provision, and it's trusting God with our basic needs. And for some of us, in, you know, in different seasons of life, things uh, can be difficult, uh, that, that is inevitable, um, this is all you can pray for sometimes. You know, it's all, all like you feel like you, you're able to pray for. And, you know, Lord, just get me to the next step, my next meal, my next, just help me through this day, Lord. And um, God understands when, when life is like that. And, and he can meet us in that time and space. You know, this, this prayer is an example of, of asking for that. And then it goes into, and forgive us our debts as we also uh, have forgiven our debtors. Now, the implication here is that you that if you haven't forgiven someone, then you should not expect forgiveness. 
It's a harsh teaching. Um, But when we are unable to forgive, it may mean we fail to recognize Jesus, uh, or or excuse me, recognize just how undeserving we are to receive Jesus' grace ourselves, right? Um, You know, how often do we fail to recognize what we really deserve? You know, if you hear messages like, you're enough, or, you know, you're worth it, and the Bible does not teach that. Um, we're, We're not enough. We can't earn our way to him. God loves us, not because we are ourselves, but be, in spite of ourselves, right? He still loves us. And, um, you know, if you don't recognize you deserve to be separated from God, you're saying in your heart and mind, Jesus, when you died on the cross, it was unnecessary for me. It may have been necessary for others, but you dying on the cross is not necessary for me. When you're unable to forgive others, that's really kind of what you're saying. And Ephesians 4.32 says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. God forgives. Uh, God's forgiveness for our sins is the only legitimate resource we can draw upon to forgive others. I don't know how, if you don't know Jesus, that you're able to even forgive others. I, I really don't. It, I, apart from Christ, it, it seems like it would be like a, like a score, like a scorekeeping relationship. Or, so, or something, right? And that's how we, even in Christ, we, we live sometimes. Um, but many don't know this, but the Lord's Prayer is, in many ways, it shares common elements with a daily Jewish prayer called the Standing Prayer. And um, in Jerusalem at noon each day, there were groups of, of 10. Okay, male Jews would pray together. So, um, so most of the concepts, including in this prayer, would have been really familiar uh, to the disciples as, he's, as he is teaching them how to pray. And um, so when the disciples are wondering how to pray and Jesus tells them the Lord's Prayer, he's kind of saying, well, you already, you already know. Let me remind you of some of these principles here. You, you know how to pray. But Abba's inclusion is unique. And the other unique addition is, is right here that we just went over, that this, this radical forgiveness that Jesus uh, references. And it's a call to recognize the undeserved relationship with God we have access to through, through Jesus. Um, and then it goes into the last section here, and it's verse 13. It says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or even the evil one, which, which is Satan, of course. And when I think of temptation, it, it conjures up for me the picture of a fish hook. And, you know, there's something tasting on there, obviously, and, and you, you grab a hold of it, and it's got you. And, you know, you're hooked. And temptation is coupled with evil in this verse because... Evil is almost always disguised as something good. Okay, I'd even say that evil is almost always disguised as something godly. That's something that's good that you were meant for, that God intended for you. And so I know when I look at my sins, it happens when I believe a lie, right? Like I believe the lie is true. And so this is a prayer for protection against temptations that lie to us. Um, but it's also a prayer against spiritual evil, okay? And those two things are important in this. You study stories, for te- like news stories, for 10 minutes and, and tell me there is no satanic, demonic influence in our world. Uh, it should be obvious. You might just be misguided or, or maybe a, a blind fool if you deny the reality of satanic influence in the world. Um, but Satan, even though he's far more intelligent and powerful uh, than all of us put together here. 
he is a defeated foe. He is not an equal but opposite counterpart to Jesus. He is an inferior power to him, and we should take heart in that. Now remember, the Lord's Prayer is it's not an equation. I'll kind of close with these thoughts. It's not an equation. God is not a uh, vending machine that works when you press the right buttons and out comes what you want. Uh, you don't say the right words or incantations and presto changeo, you've got the life that you want. You know, it's not, it's not like that. And that's certainly not what Jesus is pointing us to. Uh, but these words provide important biblical and theological principles that should encourage our relationship with God and um, act as the foundation for the church's prayer life for, for centuries more. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll close this in prayer. God, we, uh, we are thankful um, that you love us enough to teach us how to be in relationship with you. Help us to be uh, faithful to spending time with you, Lord, and um, coming before you and recognizing who you are, our hallowed Abba, who, who loves us and wants what is best for us. We have many things that are always on our heart, and you know them even when we don't mention them. And I do pray that as we come before you, we can apply some of these things and, um, and would be blessed with a greater awareness of your presence as a result. God, help us to be a praying church that desires to know and serve you well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.